Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ohio Athletic Trainers Association podcast. This is episode number two. I am Mike Johnson, your host. Before we dive in, we're going to run through a couple housekeeping items. Uh, first and foremost, the Ohio Athletic Trainers Association non-discrimination statement. Uh, the OATA does not discriminate on the basis of race, color, national origin, religion, sex, disability, military status, sexual orientation, or age. The OATA is committed to accessibility and non-discrimination in all aspects, and participants who have special needs are encouraged to contact program organizers, which would be me, so that all reasonable efforts to accommodate, uh, to accommodate you can be made. Um, the OATA copyright policy, uh, we are not using any copyrighted material throughout this episode of the podcast, and conflict of interest disclosure, myself and my guests have no conflicts of interest to disclose. So now that we have that all set up, just a friendly reminder that this podcast is meant to encourage discussion and provide information. This is not an option for continuing education, so you cannot use this as CEUs and we are all set. So the guest on the podcast today is Dr. Laura Harris, and she is going to discuss athletic training residency programs, and she is live and on. Laura, are you there? I'm here. All right. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yep. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Uh, so before we get into the topic, if you could give yourself a, a bit of an introduction, your background, where you went to school, your work experience, what you're currently doing. Sure. Uh, so I, I found the athletic training bug, like so many others, by being injured myself. Uh, so I enrolled at Wilmington College to earn my bachelor's degree right when it was budding into becoming an accredited program. So it was actually a major at that point. Uh, after college, I went to Indiana University, where I was a graduate assistant there. Upon completion of my master's, I worked in a number of different settings. I worked in two different high schools. Um, I would say West Liberty Salem. I covered their football only. I worked at Urbana High School year round. I also worked at Urbana University, which was an NAIA school where it was dual role covering uh, softball and also faculty. And that was when accreditation was really gearing up and there we, they had set a deadline that all programs had to be accredited by 2001. And this was the 1990s. And I started to get into the first standards and realized I understood none of the terminology at all. <laughs> so I thought maybe I should go back and get a doctorate in education so I at least understood what I was doing. So I enrolled at The Ohio State University where I completed my PhD was fortunate enough to take a course from the director of the School of Allied Medicine at the time. And unbeknownst to me, OSU was creating um, an academic major. They were transitioning their internship to curriculum. And the teacher in that course, Dr. Stephen Wilson, asked that we do a project to pitch a major that the school currently didn't have. Again, naive as could be, had no idea athletic training was on the docks. I pitched a program that he called me in the office about, and I thought for sure he thought I copied it somehow. I remember being so nervous, like, oh, my God, I'm getting dismissed. He's going to think I'm plagiarizing this. And this long story short is he offered me a second GA position to actually take that program and write it and put it through the curriculum committee, which became OSU's athletic training program, which I eventually uh, joined full time. So. 
now I'm at Ohio University. Uh, after about 15, 13 years at Ohio State, I decided that I, I wanted to have a different challenge in life. And so I was recruited by OU to start their PA program. And I did that for about two years and recognized how much I missed athletic training. And thanks to Dr. Chad Starkey, he was convinced to give me a job and an opportunity in their AT program, which is where I am now. Awesome. So that's a great summary there. Um, I, just so everybody has a little bit of background, um, like we said in episode one, I was a student at Ohio State while Laura was still there. Um, it was actually my senior year when she when she left us for, for OU, but now she's doing uh, great, great things. And um, I'm excited to have you on here. So um, I wanted to talk to you about athletic training residencies. And for, for all the listeners, it was actually when I approached Laura and asked her to talk about this, she said she would be happy to, but full disclosure, she is not an expert. Yes. I, I would disagree as she's in the process of, of planning um, some res a residency, and we'll get to that towards the end of the podcast here, but she wanted me to disclose that she is not an expert, but I think she's a, a great resource here for this topic. So I wanted to talk about athletic training residencies because there are, there seem to be a lot more of them popping up, but despite how many more of them are popping up, at least the, in the people in the circles that I know, there's a lot of um, people don't either don't know what they are, or they're not 100% sure of them. So we're going to start out and basically ask the question, what is an athletic training residency? You know, athletic residencies are really uh, much like a residency that you would see when someone completes medical school. Now, in medical school, it's not a requirement, although it's a very good idea because a large majority of physicians do do a residency in their specialty area, whether it's general medicine, pediatrics, orthosurgery, cardiothoracic surgery. And athletic training residencies are designed to be the same thing. It's designed to give you advanced knowledge and advanced clinical skill that builds upon what your entry level or professional education is. And I think this is the terminology in athletic training right now, I, I think most people find incredibly confusing because we're going through so much transition in education. But the two terms people need to get familiar with, because you're going to hear this more and more, is the idea of professional education versus post-professional education. Mm -hmm. Professional education is entry level regardless of what the degree is. Pharmacy is at a doctorate level, PharmD. That's a professional education program. Athletic training currently has two entries. There's still the bachelor's programs available in some state or some areas. And we still, uh, we have a lot of people transitioning to the master's degree. Now, if those are entry level, those are professional. Residency models are examples of post-professional education. Okay. Another example of post-professional education and many programs are the online doctorates you're starting to see pop up, DATs, and specifically at OU, another model that has it uh, is Chapel Hill, where they have a professional athletic training program and a post-professional athletic training program. For us, it's ultra confusing because right now they're both at master's levels. Oh, Okay. And so we, we get people who are applying to the programs and completing the wrong applications all the time because 
it, I, I do, I get it. it's very confusing, but professional education is a term that's entry level. Residencies, much like our old GA models, are post-professional education designed to build upon what you were provided as an entry-level student. Okay, so talking about, you know, professional versus post-professional, would it be an, a good idea to sum it up in that your, your professional education is the steps you would take, the education that you would take to then obtain certification, Correct. and post-professional is anything that you would do once you've already passed the BOC and you're certified? Correct. Okay, gotcha. So that's actually a, a great starting point because this is something we didn't, we did not have this in our notes. And this is what I love about doing these podcasts is because we come up with stuff along the way and that confuses me all the time. Professional, yeah, post-professional, um, entry level. Those are terms that, especially now that we're, we're, you know, we're in the transition, things mm -hmm. are happening in education that I see them all the time. And I only have kind of a, an 80% understanding of exactly what those all mean. And, you know, Mike, I think the thing that is so confusing is the different degrees, because we're so entrenched in thinking that a master's degree or a doctorate is advanced level education, and that's not going to be the case in a few years. Master's right. degrees are going to be our professional, our entry point. Uh, I think a good example is to look at PT. They're at a doctorate level, so their doctorate is actually their professional degree. Right, right. And they do have residencies, and so residencies are their post-professional. Another term you're going to hear become, I, I, I can't say that there are any fellowships that I know of. Again, this is full disclosure. I've done some internet searching. Uh, you could say I've been stalking post-professional programs, mm -hmm. but uh, <laughs> I can't say that I've actually found, I found one program that calls themselves a fellowship, but by a definition, it really isn't a fellowship. Okay. If, you, if you get into the Katie language, there is a third, a third type of post-professional program, and that's a fellowship. And just like with physicians, fellowship training comes after residency training. Okay. And, and Katie is following that same model, that if someone would do a fellowship, it would be advanced education beyond a residency. Okay. Gotcha. That's so okay. for instance, um, you're going to find a lot of the physicians we work with in athletic training are residency trained as primary care. Right. And then they do a sports medicine fellowship for one to two years after that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So they're, they're narrowing it down. So the model and AT, if you hear those words, are they're, I would say residency and fellowship both fall under post-professional education but there is, according to Katie's definition, a structure that the residency should precede the fellowship. Okay, gotcha. So kind of piggybacking off of that. So when did we first start seeing residency programs starting, starting to develop? What, was, what were kind of the, some of the initial ones that we saw and why were they at that time? Why were they being created? Yeah, it's, uh, this is a, a tough one to answer because uh, the answer I'm going to give, I'm not 100% certain is absolutely correct, so I wouldn't stake my right arm on it. Mm -hmm. But the first ones I remember seeing, and it all came from students who were interested in applying to them, was Emory in Atlanta, Georgia, 
and the Stedman Clinic in Colorado. Those are the first two. And from what I can tell on their websites, I think Stedman preceded Emory by three or four years. I think Stedman's been around anywhere from 10 to 15 years okay. if what they have on their website is accurate. Now, what's interesting is that Emory is accredited by Katie right now and Stedman is seeking accreditation. Okay. So that brings up a whole nother discussion topic about what does it mean when something, when a residency is accredited and what does it mean when it's not? And is that a marker of quality? And does that invalidate your certificate you earn if you go to something that's not accredited? But I, I believe to the best of my knowledge, Emory and Stedman, uh, it used to be Stedman Hawkins Clinic. Those are the two probably seminals. Those were the founders. Okay, gotcha. And then before we kind of dive into the the nitty gritty of what is a residency and what do they do, wh why do you think that we're starting to see more of these programs being developed? I think that's probably two things. Now, if I go back to the first two, Stedman, Hawkins, and it's now just called the Stedman Clinic and Emory Sports Med, students who were interested in those were interested because like most residencies that are Katie accredited, they focused on giving you orthopedic surgery experience. So they provided you the clinical hours and some scaffolding. Now, when I say education, it's not traditional education where you walk in a classroom for 15 weeks and you take tests and exams and you get credit hours. It's more like CE. It's okay. struck, at least structured that way, where you might do a journal club once every three weeks and have discussions, but there's no grade earned in these classes. It's either you pass them or not to continue in the residency. So these early two were really designed around giving people the credentials and the experience to sit for what was called orthotech uh, certification. I'm going to refer to that from here on out as OTC. Okay. And getting OTC enabled you to be second assist to an orthosurgery in uh, a surgical center. And so I think as athletic trainers were desiring maybe a better quality of life, more predictability, weekends free, not working late at night, this is something that became attractive. Now, one of the things that I will criticize, because most residencies are designed around the orthotech certification, my big criticism is, is that most of these schools do not hire you back. Mm -hmm. So if I shouldn't even call them schools, they're actually medical centers. Mm -hmm. um, but if Emory takes in three to five a year, do those three to five actually find jobs in other medical centers doing that role? I'm not sure that that model has caught fire as much as we hoped it would. Now, it actually makes a lot of sense financially. And this is probably where people are scratching their heads going, well, how can an AT scrub in in surgery? Mm -hmm. When it comes to reimbursement, uh, most insurance companies will reimburse for a second assist. Okay. They put no specifications on what the credential of that second assist is. They truly could be an OTC. Okay. Now, where, where it makes more sense is, and again, we sell ourselves short with this idea, and I, I don't know that I'm a fan of it, but the idea is if you look at a salary of a PA in mm -hmm. orthosurgery, which is usually around eighty-five to 95000 mm -hmm. and hiring an athletic trainer at $50,000, mm -hmm. 
it makes more financial sense for a medical center to leave the PA and clinic seeing patients because they can bill for new patients. Mm -hmm. An athletic trainer cannot. Right. But an athletic trainer can be billed as a second assist at the same rate as the PA. So why not make more money, leave the PA and clinic seeing new patients mm -hmm. and use the athletic trainer as second assist in the surgical center? Right. So that's what the whole model is predicated upon. Okay, gotcha. So we can say that initially these residency programs were created with the hope of really expanding the athletic trainer's role within, within medicine. So getting out of the, the quote-unquote traditional setting and into this, this orthopedic-type setting. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just speaking personally, um, it was actually someone who was a, a classmate of mine. Um, she was a couple years behind me. Who She was the first one that I had heard of as an athletic trainer working um, – you know, in, in surgeries. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking at the time when I kind of heard that, I was like, did I hear that right? And I kind of went back and rewound the, I think it was like a video or something I was watching where I found the info and I was like, wow, I really didn't know that we could do that. Mm -hmm. And now learning that the, the residency was one of the driving forces to kind of get that process started. Yeah. Uh, that's really interesting. And it's it, what's, what's unfortunate about it is, like you said, is that you, you have these residency programs that do seem to be becoming more and more popular, but we're not seeing that, um, that buy-in from these medical centers of, hey, like I, I have this degree and I have this, this OTC, you know, background and they're they're not making making the hire so that that's the one un unfortunate part about the residencies as they are right now yeah I, I, the, certainly um i would say that residencies came about selfishly because the medical centers were trying to figure out how to get more reimbursement now has it created opportunity for ats and have we jumped on that that wagon certainly mm -hmm. but it, it it still is that we are getting these jobs because you can hire two of us for the cost of a PA now I, I don't know that that's going to continue to be what we want to advocate for correct correct yeah because I mean obviously the whole purpose is we want to I don't think we want to say hey, you can pay us 50 instead of the, the paying the PA 80, 85 when right. we're trying to seek more money <laughs> for, our, for ourselves. I don't think we want to um, make that our, our, our big um, selling our, point. You our know? push, yes. Yeah, hey, we work for cheap. That's, not, <laughs> that's probably not the best idea. Um, but so really we kind of answered our – my next, you know, bullet point I want to talk about is, you know, the purpose of a residency program. So we've, we've kind of loosely defined that as, you know, this was a, an opportunity to earn um, an extra certification with that, the, you know, the ortho, the tech, ortho tech certification, excuse me. Um, so, but beyond that, are there any other credentials or certifications that we're starting to see coming out of residency programs or is that that ortho tech certification still kind of the the main one 
I would say a quick glance, I pulled it up this morning to do a, a search of KD accredited residencies and there are currently 10 that are accredited and of those 10, six of them do focus on orthosurgery as the primary focus and providing the OTC credential. Now there's one uh, marking the seventh of the 10 that works just in an ortho office where okay. there's no surgery, but the athletic trainer is rooming patients, taking uh, P PHX, which we call previous ha uh, medical history, mm -hmm. and they're doing a physical exam and then providing the, the physician with a rundown. The goal in those models is that a physician can spend less time per patient, so they pull in more revenue units. Okay. Whereas the athletic trainer is doing a lot of the heavy lifting and narrowing down what the differential is and what the AT thinks the physician should go in and order script wise. Then the AT comes back in and delivers the patient education. So the, AT, the physician can go around to multiple patients within an hour. So there's one doing that. There's one that focuses on a college setting and there's two that provide more high school rotation. Now, when Katie got involved, Katie's uh, guidelines state that you have to choose an area of focus okay. for your residency. That area of focus cannot be around a clinical setting. So I can't create a um, residency to say that I want it to be about the high school. Okay. Now that can be my primary clinical focus, like the operating room or the surgical center, but the focus has to be in, in most of these cases, it's musculoskeletal rehabilitation. Okay. So the seven areas of focus are prevention and wellness, urgent and emergent care, primary care, orthopedics, rehabilitation, behavioral health, and pediatrics. Okay. Right now, uh, the only ones that I have found are primary care and orthopedics. Okay, so there there are some some opportunities then for different, you know, outside of primary care and orthopedics. So we, we have some guidelines that say we can do these other things. So by we, I mean a residency program. So if I wanted to start a residency program, it does not have to be orthopedics or primary correct. care. Okay, they now, just, I, they're just I, not there yet. Correct, and I I don't I have no uh, monetary kickback on this or involvement, but I will say that SUMA is an example um, up in Akron area where they are actually using athletic trainers in their fast track. Fast tracks are a facet of emergency rooms that are low priority, um, low severity. So okay. the classic ankle sprain that okay. will come into your ER that all of us can tell they're partially bearing weight, there's no deformity, and if it is a fracture, it's probably a fib or a fifth met, and mm -hmm. it's not a complete or deformed fracture. They're putting athletic trainers in their fast track to handle these types of things. Okay. Where they'll do the ortho eval, and they'll write into the EMR system that they recommend x-rays. A physician will go in and read, and then say, yeah, I, based on this, I think so. Um, the, or depending on the insurance, if it's Medicaid or Medicare, the doc has to actually physically go in, mm -hmm. see the patient and say, yes, order an x-ray. But again, you're able to treat more patients more quickly instead of having that non-emergent, non-life-threatening patient sit there for three hours. Mm -hmm. So a fast track. I, I would envision 
that in some point in time, maybe that becomes a residency. I don't, I've not talked to anybody at SUMA to know, I'm just using that as an example. That's yeah. something you could build a residency around. Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic point. Um, and the, re the reason, I, so obviously I'm up in the Northeast District and so I'm very familiar with SUMA and I didn't even realize that was a thing that they were doing, you know? I mean, and that's, that's fantastic. And something that, I am seeing uh, more and more is there's another system up here uh, that does an, an orthopedic only um, urgent care. They call it an orthopedic quick care where mm -hmm. you are seeing um, you, like you said, that classic ankle sprain where, you know, maybe I see it at my high school and I say, mm, maybe, you know, there's, there's enough here that maybe we should get some imaging today. And the parents uh, in this, and like I said, in my instance at a high school, the parents are choosing to go to this, this orthopedic quick care because you're not sitting in an ER for four hours, you know, waiting right. to get roomed because obviously they're, they're triaging. So they're not, you know, you're not competing with the, the chest pains and the, the head traumas and the, the gunshot wounds and, you know, stuff like that. It is strictly for orthopedic and musculoskeletal injuries. So your wait time is significantly lower. You're mm -hmm. seeing an, an orthopedic either physician or PA or NP, and they're going to look at you, they're going to x-ray you, and they're going to start you know, treatment, they're going to say, you know, it's not a, you know, you go to your, your typical ER and they look and they say, Oh, Hey, here's a fracture. We're going to give you kind of a, a makeshift, you know, plaster cast. And then you need to follow up with ortho next week. They're already there. They're getting you in the boot or they're getting you the cast that you actually need. And I've seen that as an opportunity where I'm like, man, it really seems like they could utilize athletic trainers in this instance. And perhaps like you said, if they're, does happen to be a residency program that focuses on that emergent care section, then mm -hmm. that would be a, a simple, that would be an easy fit. So whether it's what SUMA is doing or what this other system is doing, um, huge opportunity there, like window of, of uh, opportunity for athletic trainers and residency programs in general. Absolutely. And I, I don't I don't want what I'm about to say come across as a criticism of other professions, but the terminology we see uh, the Center for Medicaid Medicare Services using is NPP, and that means a non-physician provider. Okay. Uh, PAs and NPs hate mid-level. If you have ever heard that term, they really don't like to be called mid-level providers. Okay. It, cre it creates you know a tier system, and, and nobody likes to be on the lower end of a tier system. So NPP is kind of the terminology I think most people find favorable. And we are striving to be part of that group called non-physician providers. Now, in, in terms of CMS, they don't really view us as a non-physician provider because we don't have the billing flexibility mm -hmm. that the other two professions have. But this is where I think as a profession, we have an opportunity with residencies. I don't think people recognize PAs are not trained orthopedically in specialization. They're mm -hmm. not trained specifically in cardiothoracic. They just navigate that direction because like, just like we do, do you want to work in a high school or a college or a doc's office? It's where they navigate after they graduate, but right. their training is typically six to 12 weeks. And some, some will go as little as four week rotations. Mm -hmm. in one year. Wow. Okay. 
Most of their programs are 24 to 27 months in length, and they do four semesters of coursework and three semesters of clinical. Okay. And, and they rotate. They have uh, things that are required. I don't know that I'll hit these all off the top of my head, but I know emergency is one of them, general surgery is one, um, primary care, women's health. I feel like I'm missing one. But ortho is not a required rotation. Oh, okay. It's an elective. Now, do it's probably one of the top three work settings for PAs, but the reason I bring it up, it sounds like I'm going on a, a tangent, but I'm bringing this back around. You were mentioning in the ER. Mm -hmm. You have NPs and PAs that are seeing you orthopedically that may have spent at most six weeks mm -hmm. in their training in orthopedics, or you could hire an athletic trainer. Now, granted, I also think it's false to say we specialize orthopedically. I think we're more primary care than anything in family med, but we certainly have more orthopedic experience than Correct. those other two professions. So it, training ourselves to really see the value of what we have. And that to me is a setting where we are bread and butter there and mm -hmm. our accuracy and not ordering x-rays that may mm -hmm. not be needed. Now, maybe the medical center doesn't want that. <laughs> I, don't, right. I don't know. Right. But I, I definitely think in terms of patient satisfaction, being able to move patients more quickly and only order testing that truly is indicative um, and being indicated as necessary because of the history and the physical exam. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you talk about, when you talk about that and, you know, nurse practitioners and PAs, I mean, they're, they're fantastic at what they do. They really are. But when you, when you look at, when you start to compare, when you're, when you're trying to fight for a spot as an athletic trainer, like you said, in that non, non-physician provider, um, when you start to look at some of the things, it's like, yeah, there, here's a handful of things that NPs and, and PAs will do that we definitely don't. But here's a handful of things where maybe we're a little more qualified, like you said, yeah. in some of those those orthopedic or emergency situations. I mean, that's that's what we do. That's what we're, you know, we're trained to be, you know, if you look at the roots of the profession, we're trained to be on the field when uh, the crap hits the fan, that right. we're the ones that jump in and we know exactly what we're doing. And not to mention, like you said, I mean, the knowing when to order or get that imaging. I mean, if I sent every single kid that I saw at the high school for an x-ray, my team, none of my teams would be able to compete. You know, you know, right. we'd be, we'd have kids waiting, you know, for, for imaging all day long. And um, yeah, I think you're a hundred percent right there. And, and again, that's not like we said, like you said, that's not to criticize any of the other professions. It's just looking at what we're doing and what they're doing and noticing what we're good at, what we're not good at, and what they're good at, and what they're mm -hmm. not good at. They're very good in primary care. And believe me, I know some excellent orthopedic PAs and NPs, but they've become very good because they've been in it for five and six years. Right, absolutely. 100%. So much of what we do, we become great at it five or six years after experience with it. Uh, I just believe that athletic training has the ability, they're there are some residencies in PA, although they're very, very small in number. I think this is where athletic training has the advantage. When you look at the curriculum of all three of those non-physician providers, 
<clears throat> they're all very quick. And when I worked with PA, there was a phrase they used that they are educating you so quickly and with so much volume. They said it was like drinking water from a fire hose. Yeah. Really, that's what we're about to embark on mm -hmm. in AT education. And to think that we do this, this is leading probably to the very end, but this is my biggest point. We base everything in our education model off our a mature skeleton, but yet over 30% of our athletic trainers go out and work with an adolescent, yet over these two years of drinking water from a fire hose, we haven't really prepared them for the immature skeleton and what is the most autonomous setting for athletic trainers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's what I'm doing. <laughs> High school and middle school, name me one other profession that takes their new graduate and sticks them out by themselves. Right. I can't Absolutely. think of one. No, Cannot, you're right. Can't think of one. Yeah. And um, not, not to go off on a tangent here, but it's funny. Um, my uh, assistant and I were just talking about this. And so the, the current system that I, setup that I have with my, you know, sports medicine team at the school I'm at is I'm the, the head athletic trainer and I'm at, I'm at the high school and Chrissy, my assistant is the middle school athletic trainer. And she also helps out at the high school as well. And this fall, she had just a slew of, of epiphyseal fractures and mm -hmm. other, and other growth plate things. And we were talking about it and she said, you know, if I, were to create a, a pamphlet for someone who was going to a middle school, it would be nothing but refresher on growth plate yep. issues because she's like, I don't remember ever even learning this, you know? Right. And, and I was very fortunate that I had um, a high school preceptor in the, in the great Don Hall who beat this into my head um, literally sometimes that, um, you know, what these things were and how to navigate them and look for them because certainly like through our education, you know, they're mentioned, but it, it was kind of mentioned like, you know, you're, you know, a slide pops up and it says, you know, Salter Harris fracture. Right. And it's like, Hey, this is what this is. You're going to need this for the BOC. You're not going to see this too often. It's like, well, yeah, in the collegiate setting, you're not going mm -hmm. to. In the professional setting, you're not going to. But in the high school setting, that's probably half of the things I see, you know. And, and when you look at our competencies, Michael, we're putting, and this isn't a criticism, but we're putting more general medical and emergency skill in the competencies. We're not creating more room to address the mature skeleton and the right. immature skeleton. We're crowding it more. So I think that in athletic training, this is really how we prepare people, even though Katie doesn't want us to say that we build a residency around a clinical setting, mm -hmm. you can build it around the area focus of pediatrics, right. and, and you can build it around uh, urgent and emergent care. So I think there are definitely some opportunities for us to get ahead of other non-physician providers and start addressing a more focused content area in preparation for our clinical settings, because I don't believe that we're going to be able to change any of this in the new education model that's about to emerge. Right, right. So actually, this is really, even though it seems like we were going off on tangents here, we really did a good job of answering. We're, 
we make a habit of this, Laura, we're getting ahead of ourselves, <laughs> um, is why would someone want to participate in a residency program? And I initially wanted to ask you this question because I wasn't sure. But yeah. after just through our conversation, I'm going to take a, I'm going to take a whirl at this and, and answering this question. And then you can critique and add beyond. It seems like if you were someone who you finished your, and let's see if I use these terms correctly, you finish your professional education program, mm -hmm. you become certified and you're trying, you're trying to find a job mm -hmm. and you're, you're thinking about where you want to go. And maybe you recognize in yourself that the, the field that you want to work in, maybe you're not as prepared. So you find a residency program that would better prepare you for that setting, that line of work, that type of work, meaning that, that primary care, that orthopedic, that emergency. Mm -hmm. Does that seem like a, an okay summary as to why would somebody want to do a residency program? Yes, I, I think that you're going to encounter two types of graduates, and, and I'm saying this based upon needs assessment. So this is where disclosing for three years, I have been writing and proposing a residency. I'm one step away from launching this thing, three mm -hmm. years of work. But one of the things I originally did was reach out to some programs that had already in the Midwest transitioned to a professional master's. And I ask them, uh, it, the faculty, would you just ask your students who would be interested in a program such as, and I would give them what I was thinking I wanted to propose. And what came back was about 50-50. Mm -hmm. And I believe it's going to be two different types of students. There's going to be one type of student who comes out and believes they're ready. Mm-hmm. And that's probably a student who's probably tracking something where they don't have to be a spot on because there's others around them, whether it's a collegiate setting with five other people in the athletic training room to onboard and mentor them, whether it's a professional setting, whether it's a physician's office where there's other nurses and non-physician providers and physicians around. Mm -hmm. But for those who are identifying that they want to do a high school or a middle school, what you described in your setting is... It's, it's the gold standards where I hope we're moving to put athletic trainers to cover an entire district, middle and high school. But let's, mm -hmm. let's be honest, that's not what most people are doing. Mm -hmm. So what I found a needs assessment is those who indicated they wanted to go into high school settings, this type of programming was absolutely something they wanted. Because okay. what's the benefit? One, residents, you're, you're paid a full-time salary. Mm -hmm. You're given full medical benefits, and in some cases, that also means that you're given a flexible spending account or a health savings account. Right. You're given the clothing from the medical center, and you're giving a CE budget. Okay. And while you're earning a full-time salary and all of this, you're also enrolled in a certificate program. Mm-hmm. So many students were like, why wouldn't I do it? I, I would say in my research, what I've found is the average salary uh, for a residency is about $35,000. And most of them do include full benefits. Okay. There you go. Um, adding to that, do you think, and obviously we're, we're getting into a couple things here that maybe we don't have 100% 
definitive answers on this, but do you think for, for that student that you're talking about that wants to further their, their education or obtain a different certificate, an additional certification in something, do you think that the residency programs make these students more hireable? That's a, that's a tough question because I, I think that that's obviously my criticism of the ortho tech programs. Right. Is that we may be supplying more um, than the demand. Okay. It is wanting right now. I'm not sure what, what they're, what they built that on is legal and it, it makes good financial sense. But sometimes practice managers and the people who are doing the billing and coding are very afraid to go out on a limb and trust something that they haven't seen work themselves. And so I, I'm not sure that in all cases it makes someone more employable. My, my hope is that something that focus on a high school or a college setting, my hope is that colleges move away from the intern Right. And would go to something like this because I think it's it's better for our profession mm -hmm. than paying someone a, a ton of oh, I, I can't even say a ton of money. I don't even know where that came from. Right. <laughs> some some people are paying them poultry. Some are paying fair, but there's no education. Right. Along with it. Um, I would hope that regardless of what the focus is, whether it's orthopedics in college, whether it's pediatric in high school, middle school, that this is the model we would start to develop because one, we may not be making someone maybe, I don't know, maybe they're not more hireable, maybe they are, but at least we're training and preparing people to be better clinicians, which has to have some value and benefit in the end. And we're not driving someone into further debt while they right. get training. Right. That's a great point. And I think to when you, when you look at the, I mean, like you said, the, some of these, you know, the oldest residency program, you know, they're, you're, you're talking about 10 years, you know, so it, it's might be one of those things where right now it doesn't really make you more hireable because it's not as, as well known of mm -hmm. a, of an item, but maybe as these develop, as they become more popular and maybe as they diversify into those other um, categories that you laid out, you know, that Katie has established, um, maybe it will make you more hireable within those other things, you know, as opposed to, you know, maybe for whatever reason, the, the ortho tech thing didn't work, but maybe the emergency one that we discussed will, or maybe behavioral health will. Mm -hmm. um, so that's all something that, that could be changing as everything is changing right now. And one of the other things that I know this is going to come up and, you know, people listening may have the question is, okay, so if, if I do this, um, like we, we touched on, does it make me more hireable? And um, does it have any effect on your salary? And Laura and I spoke before we started recording this. And the real answer to that is there's just not any data out there. So, I can't find it. I, right. So we can't exists, definitively say, right. We can't definitively say whether doing a residency gives you more of a, a bargaining, uh, a bargaining chip to, you know, per se to say, um, I deserve a, a higher salary or anything like that. Um, so as of right now, that's still up in the air because um, the data is just not there. Mm -hmm. um, 
So some of these things you touched on already, Laura, but basically when you're talking about a residency program, really what, what's kind of the format? What's, what's the structure um, you touched on that they're, they're paid. So my, one of my questions was, are they paid or are they unpaid? And you said, um, but really, really what's the structure of them? How do they work? What are, you know, what's the, what's the, how much of it is education? How much of it is, is work is work? Um, how much of it is, um, you know, are there any, is there anything that you would have to pay like tuition or anything mm-hmm. like that? Um, yeah, just kind of sum, summarize how they really work. So when it comes to, to some of those specific questions about uh, coursework and payment and tuition, Katie does not dictate that part of it. Okay. What they dictate is the structure of it, that you have to be able to create clinical experiences and didactic learning focused around a content area and it has to be evidence-based and it has to deal with quality improvement, patient-centered care, um, informatics, all the things that they have traditionally expected of post-professional programs. So the reason I mention this is that you're going to see a lot of variance okay. in the structure of these programs as they evolve. Uh, what I'm proposing is completely different. Traditionally, what these programs have been, have been much like medical residencies for physicians. They pay you a full-time salary and they work you a lot. Okay. 40 plus hours a week, you get a full-time salary, you get full-time benefits. Every two to three weeks, they may bring you in and you may work on a cadaver one day. Um, You might have a journal club. You might be involved in some data collection for a large medical center research project. There's components to all of these that are slightly different, but it is run more like a journal club or a grand rounds. Okay. In a traditional classroom. So whenever you hear the word didactic, we think of a, cl- a traditional classroom setting, and that's right. not what the majority of these residencies are built around. They're built more around grand rounds, journal club. There are some that do give you experience with a cadaver, but again, it's going to be one afternoon, and you're not going to, one afternoon you can't dissect. It's going to be a prosected cadaver. Okay. Gotcha. So it's going to, basically it's going to vary between, between programs. So there's not a, there's not a specific, like you said, it's not like the, the academic standards where and obviously the, the academics will vary between institution as well, but the academic standards are a little more rigid. There's certain things you, you must have. Um, so the, the residency program is, although there are some things that you, you have to do, there's a lot more variability. Is that mm-hmm. fair? Yeah. And you're going to find some of these residencies are 100% run out of medical centers. So they don't have the ability to give you coursework. Right. Some are run out of universities that have medical schools. Uh, and then there's a couple that are going to do what I'm proposing, where it's a joint venture between a university and a medical center. And certainly that's what I think is optimal is being able to marry what each does well the education with the medical center experience you're also going to find there's a variance in how much you rotate to different settings some of these residencies about every six weeks you're going to radiology then you're going to primary care then you're going to ortho surgery then you're going out to a high school so there's a lot of rotations and some are more immersive 
and that you're going to find that you spend a lot of time in one specific type of setting because that's what the residency is built around if it's pediatrics you're going to okay. spend most of your time in a high school middle school but you still get experiences in maybe radiology or primary care offices too okay gotcha um so really my next question i think is kind of this one may be a little might be very easy for someone like you to describe but as i think of it is how are these residencies going to fit into the master's level education so now that you know we're we're well you know the wheels are already in motion uh the the deadlines are set and we know that the master's program is, is here and it's not going anywhere where do residencies fit within that and and i don't necessarily mean like you know in you know, linear progression of, you know, undergrad, master's residency. I mean, how, how will they couple with the master's program and what those educational standards would be and what a residency program will have to offer? Ironically, others, others may disagree with me, but ironically, I think residency programs, when you look at the Katie guidelines and the standards, they really just fill the same content of post-professional programs, the master's programs or the GA okay. we, in AT that we used to see and still see. I, I certainly OU still has one. Mm -hmm. When you look at the content area of what they want a residency to focus on, it's the exact same. Okay. As our post-professional master's program, it's just less scripted. Okay. You're allowed more autonomy in developing it than you are when it is a degree program. This is a non-degree. It's a certificate program. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. So really it's not like, it's not like the master's program is going to hinder the development of these residencies or it's, or that the master's program is going to make it easier or better for the residency programs but the the residency program is providing that post professional level that we saw before with GAs and other things like that yeah I, I mean Katie is very clear that they do not want residencies to become thinly veiled internships okay but in terms of speaking a language that everyone can understand I really view residencies as a marriage between the amount of experience you got as an intern with the curricular side of the post-professional masters. Okay. I believe this is a marriage of the two where you're really trying to get someone immersive experience in a specific area to build their skill set while also giving them advanced knowledge okay. along with that skill set. Meanwhile, you're paying them a full-time salary and benefits. Right. Right. Yeah. That's a That's a great point that I don't, I'm definitely not someone who could disagree with you on that. That makes total sense. Um, so I wanted to bring this up cause I want your, your opinion. Um, my, my theory on, on residencies as they fit with master's level. Um, I'll just throw this out there. I, this is just a thought that I've had. I have no insider information. Um, I have no uh, dog in this fight really, but my theory is that eventually we will see residency programs become a requirement within the world of athletic training, meaning that you will obtain your bachelor's degree, obtain your master's in athletic training, and then before you are 
certified and out in the real world practicing, you will have to complete a residency program. Am I crazy or does that make sense to you? I think that I agree somewhat. Um, I think that when you become certified, I would change that in the flow chart. Now, mm -hmm. this is where it'd be great to have Dr. Starkey on the call too, because he and I disagree about this 100%. Okay. So I bring that up so people can understand this is purely opinion. Mm -hmm. If I take a step back and explain that all accreditation, there's two types of accreditation. There's um, North Central or university-wide uh, higher learning commission accreditation that a university has to obtain, but then there's also professional accreditation that specific majors have to obtain. Katie is a professional accreditor. Okay. All accreditation is 100% voluntary. Okay. No school, no program ever has to be accredited. They voluntarily do it, but it's kind of like the division one voluntarily mandatory practices. Right. Because <laughs> if you don't become accredited by Katie, your students aren't eligible to sit for the BOC exam. Correct. So that's where we can wink and say it's voluntary. It's more voluntarily mandatory if you want to practice as an AT. So considering right. that, there has to be a mechanism by which the BOC, which will be the place that specialty certifications are housed. Mm hmm the BOC will regulate those. There has to be a mechanism by which the BOC can say you cannot hold a specialty certification unless you do X, Y, and Z. And this is where I think it may come down. Now, I think this is 10, 15 years down the road. Mm -hmm. We have been talking about specialty certifications as a profession for over 15 years. Mm -hmm. Two years ago at the NATA Clinical Symposium, I attended a session hosted by the BOC where they said they were actively involved in creating their first specialty certification around working in a physician's office. Okay. Now, common sense to me would dictate that those residencies that are training you for that would also train you to be able to sit for that specialty certification and obtain it. Okay. Now, in order for that to become, in order for that residency to be required as a, um, what do I say, a requirement or a prerequisite in order to sit for that specialty cert, that's going to have to come from the BOC. Mm -hmm. I think that they may do that in the end. So if you wanted, let's say they end up developing a specialty certification that aligns with all the areas of focus within residencies, that being prevention and wellness, mm -hmm. urgent and emergent care, primary care, orthopedics, rehabilitation, behavioral health, pediatrics. Let's say they end up with seven specialty certifications. This is hypothetical. They've never said they're doing this. But mm -hmm. let's say the BOC creates these. It makes sense that completing a residency that prepares you for those exams may, in 20 years, become a requirement to sit for those specialty certification exams. Okay. I think that may be the direction they're going, but they've got to get the specialty certification exams developed before we ever get to that. And there aren't even residencies reflecting half of those areas. Mm -hmm. So we're a long way from it, but I think that there is at least a long-term goal that this could be the direction we're headed, although they've never said that. 
I can definitely see the organization of where this may become available. Dr. Starkey disagrees 100%. He says the BOC will never mandate mm -hmm. that you have to do that training. Yeah. Hmm. I, you know, it's, it's interesting. This brings up a kind of a conversation that I had with, with my team physician this year. Uh, and we were discussing things with, with a parent of, of one of our, one of our patients and we were talking about it. This was a, it was a non musculoskeletal injury and, and the parent was just kind of, just kind of venting to us. Like, you know, we had to see our primary care physician. Then we had to see our, then we had to see a urologist. So we had to see a cardiologist and we, and they started going on and uh, my team physician said, he said, yeah, he goes, well, that's the thing within medicine. He said, you know, 50 years ago, physicians were, were generalists. They yeah. were, they were a physician. And, and he said, and then what we found is that it made more sense to become a, instead of a generalist, be a specialist. He goes, but now people were finding people are getting frustrated because there are so many specialties, because when you go to a hospital, if you're admitted to a hospital, you'll see 15 different physicians, you know, and nobody really knows which one is, is in the lead and making all the decisions. And um, I think that would be one thing that I would worry about within our own profession is that mm -hmm. we would become too specific, you know, and yeah. I, I think, I think there's again, this is just my personal opinion. I think there's definitely um, room for specialization in certain things, but I think we, I think we would be doing ourselves a disservice if we said, you know, a after you, you know, you finish your master's degree and now you have to do a residency declaring right. your specialty. You know, I don't think we'll ever, in. I don't think you'll ever get that. Okay. I don't think, cause it's not, a, it's not a requirement for physicians that they have to do a residency. Right, right. But the market is such that if you don't, yeah, you're kind of, it, it's harder for you to find employment. So um, I don't know that we will, I will be long retired before we would ever get to a situation like that. I think this will be an elective process, mm -hmm. but it's probably a process much like I explained in the very beginning when I started to write a self-study for accrediting my first program and I had no idea what I was doing. I, I think of most emotionally mature and reflective professionals, when you get into a situation where you just don't understand what you're doing, there is a desire to learn how to do it better. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think yeah. that's probably the driving force. Right. And I think there's that, there's that fine line, like we said, of, of having specialties because it really diversifies what we can do as an athletic trainer. Mm -hmm. like, like we said, we can get out of that, that quote unquote traditional setting where it's, you know, it's you with a school or you with a team or whatever. And we can utilize, you know, put ourselves out there and say, Hey, we are qualified to be, you know, in, in the, in the OR, we are qualified to be in these emergency, you know, urgent care, emergency room settings, stuff like that. But at the same time, um, like I said, just my personal opinion, I think we would, we don't want to become over-specialized, but Correct. Um, having that opportunity to say, um, you know, getting a little bit of extra education, a little bit of extra knowledge behind what we're doing will allow us to come to, you know, have a seat at the table with the NPs, the PAs, the, the physicians and say like, hey, this is, 
the education that we bring and why we're qualified for this alternative role as opposed mm -hmm. to, you know, being with a school, being with a team, stuff like that. There's so, always a risk. I, I will say that made me think of something when you were talking about being too specialized. I don't know if you follow the DIN or gather much, and there's been so much argument this week about the cost and difficulty of our CEs. I have to say I don't agree with most of what was posted because I don't think that we're difficult at all. But if we ever got to a point where we sensed we were becoming too specialized, there is the possibility to do what PA does in re-credentialing. Mm -hmm. Every 10 years, PAs have to retake their certification exam. Okay. Pants, their pants exam. And I think the reason they do it is so often they come out as generalists. Mm -hmm. Maybe they had a really good experience with a cardiothoracic rotation and the medical center hires them to be a cardiothoracic surgery PA. Mm -hmm. And for the next 10 years of your life, that's all you see is cardiothoracic. Right. So you forget all the behavioral health. You forget all the general surgery. You forget everything that you see in just chronic illness and medication. And so what PA does is every 10 years, you've got to retake the, the entire pants exam. Mm -hmm. to pass and be re-credentialed. I don't know that that's a perfect mechanism, but it certainly is one mechanism that could be employed to make sure that you stay knowledgeable and that you continue to pursue CE that keeps your knowledge generally focused. Yeah. I, God, I, again, I don't want to go off on a tangent again, but I actually love that idea. And I, it's something that um, now that you're saying it, I, I knew that, but if you would have asked me a minute ago, I'd have been like, I don't know what you're talking about. The reason I bring that up is because I, I worked with a coach whose wife was a, was a PA mm -hmm. and she had to, you know, retake her exam. So I knew that was a thing, but I never kind of, you know, connected the dots and put two and two together if that's what they, you know, that's what they were doing. And I, again, personal opinion, I think that's a fantastic idea because especially now that there's so many CEs you can do online, um, that sometimes worries me because I know you can go through some of these things and just click, 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 and get to the end of it and answer a couple questions and be done. And it's like, did you really even learn anything? You know, you got, you got the 80% on the, on the quiz at the end that you were allowed to take five times, you know, you know what I'm saying? And so I think having that type of check would really add more meaning to to the CE that we have, but that's a different topic for a different day. Um, but so before we end here, cause we, we've gotten through most of what we wanted to talk about. Um, you've, you've hinted at it a couple times, but I wanted to give you the opportunity um, to discuss the, the residency program that you are, you are developing. Um, before we go into this, I'm just going to, I'm going to say this for, you know, Laura, um, she's not, this isn't an, an advertisement. She's not getting any money, any kickback or anything, but really just to discuss, you know, that, that process and, and what it is and what you're hoping it, uh, it will become. Yeah, it, one of the things we've noticed in higher ed, if I go general, Mike, is is the idea that whether it's business, it's not just medicine specific, it's even in business, certificate programs are what we're seeing right now in the iGen and the, and the later millennial generation and that once they finish a degree and they get in a role, there is a desire to have additional training to meet the demands of a new job or a new position. And so 
right now higher ed is banking in some money by offering what we call credentialing or certificate programs. So the idea that AT residency uh, could not fit this mold seemed, well, it seemed like a, a reasonable thing. Now, the first thing I want to tell anybody thinking about going back for a non-degree program is you are not eligible for federal financial aid. Okay. They will, the government will not give you a student loan if there isn't a degree to be earned at the end. So anyone doing these, this is why you have to be paid a full-time salary. I think the smart thing to do is to go on a payment plan. If you enroll in a type of program that I'm proposing where you would actually take classes for credit hour that could be transferred into a DAT. Okay. I, I think that there makes a lot of sense that if you're going to spend time learning something, get the credit hours for it so that these are credit hours that could be transferred into an online doctorate and save okay. you some time down the road if this is what you would want to do is pursue an online doctorate somewhere. So our program, all residencies that I have researched are 12 months. That seems to be the standard. They seem to fit the typical calendar of starting pre-season, whether that be July, August, and going for the full 12 months thereafter. Uh, what we're looking at is no different. We are looking at coming in anywhere from five to 10,000 above the average pay for a residency. Okay. We are partnering with Ohio Health. And what we want to focus on is preparing really good high school and middle school athletic trainers. So our focus will be pediatric and adolescent sports medicine. You will have a full cadaver anatomy course. Uh, you will have a course in manual therapy. You will have a course in psychosocial issues of the developing athlete. Um, and there'll be two evidence-based practice courses that are focused on the upper part of the body and then the lower part of the body. Those will encompass both diagnostic and intervention-based uh, evidence-based processes. So I think the curriculum is designed 100% around um, the adolescent and developing skeleton and the mental health mm -hmm. of that individual. The coursework at this point is all approved in the university. Right now, I am waiting on the final step. It's been approved at the division level, the school level, the college level, and the dean, and now it's before the university. So okay. I'm hoping by March, even though I have no control over that timeline, I'm hoping by March we have full approval and we can start promoting and advertising. And our first class would be, we would do admissions interviews in January of 2021. Mm -hmm. So 13 months from now, and students would start July 1 of 2021. Okay, that sounds awesome. And what I would say is 100% the reason Ohio Health is doing this is because they want to train the best and they mm -hmm. want to retain them. So unlike what you're seeing in some of the, what I've criticized in the OTC models, there is the goal to retain what they're training. Mm -hmm. They want to offer jobs to people and keep the best in central Ohio. So I think that to me is probably one of the missing pieces that you've seen from some of these marquee OTC focused residency programs is that they just don't have enough turnover to be able to hire what they're training. Right. 
and I, I think that is one of the things that Ohio Health has been very vested in that they want to they want to pay them to be very uh, a very competitive salary one because we want to pay them enough that they can afford to pay the tuition they're going to pay right to OU. Okay. And so that's the goal of going so far over the median salary is that we want there to be enough of a reserve income that they can pay down that tuition as they go. Right. So your, I guess what you're proposing is a, a program that will like, so we talked about a lot of these residency programs. They are the certificate level. You're mm -hmm. not really, you're not really taking you know, classroom courses, but within the residency program that you're developing, you would be taking these courses and mm -hmm. earning, earning credit hours. So, at, so at the end of your residency program, then what, what is the, what is the outcome for that person when it's they finish still, the 12 it's months? It's still a certificate. Um, okay. and, and just to give you an example right now, I don't think OU is unique in this, but we have, um, certificate programs in healthcare leadership. We have certificate programs in informatics. We have right. certificate programs in quality improvement within medical centers. So there's certificate programs all over the university. Mm -hmm. This is no different. It's a certificate program, but you actually will generate a transcript. Okay. And those could then be carried over, like you said, into a DAT program if... Correct if the if the individual wanted to do that correct so it kind of gives them so if you're doing your your typical residency program it's a certificate and when you're done if you wanted to do a dat or something of the like mm -hmm. you, you're basically starting from scratch whereas with the program you're proposing you will have the certificate still but then you have the transcript behind you that you can transfer into other programs correct okay wow that's that's interesting and the partnership with with ohio health was mm -hmm. that was that because you were trying to find a solution to the the lack of of jobs once residencies are complete or was that um because you needed what was what's the driving force behind the partnership with ohio health Oh, Michael, you know me. I, <laughs> I, I'm always on the search for something that improves and not just improves for who I'm working for, but for the profession as a whole. And there's a couple of research lines I've been working on and, and none of my research is ever at the level that it cures cancer. I, I am not someone that's teaching you how to be better and uh, getting outcomes post-ACL. Mine's very practical and mm -hmm. oftentimes very business-oriented, but there's two things I believe that this transition to professional masters is going to highlight and make worse. Now, I will go on the record, there are things that it's gonna to improve too, so I'm not, I'm not naysaying the move, mm -hmm. but we have to look at it realistically. Number one, the generation that we're seeing come through, and I learned this with PA, when we take students who have a bachelor's in biology or psychology, they are not more emotionally mature and prepared because of their age to take a medical history. They are the equivalent of a bachelor sophomore that mm -hmm. I encountered when I was teaching professional students, but yet we've got to train them to engage and interact with people within two years. Mm-hmm. 
So I believe that we are going to look a lot like PA did when they made the shift from associates to masters. And when I was out on the road recruiting for PA and recruiting preceptors and recruiting students, there was a, a very clear theme that emerged based on the age of the physician. Mm -hmm. If it was a physician who had been practicing for 10 plus years, they were very critical of the new educational model in PA. Things I heard is, oh, they don't even know how to maintain sterile field in the OR. I kick someone out for the first year they're employed routinely because they break surgical field and they have to go rescrub in. They don't understand EMR. They don't understand billing and insurance. And every year I'm retraining someone and then they leave in two years and I'm retraining again. Well, what's that sound like? Right. A residency model. Mm-hmm. And a residency model for a physician who had no desire to be training a residency model. Right. Absolutely. The other one was if it was a newer physician, young in their career, in the first two years, they thought PAs were great. Mm -hmm. so very quickly, I started to recognize this shift to a professional master's that PA went through they were not, they were recruiting a different type of student. When they were associates, they were recruiting people who had been dietitians for 10 years, mm -hmm. EMTs or paramedics for 10 years, athletic mm -hmm. trainers for 10 years. So yeah, it was still a two-year degree, but they were people who had really a lot of experience in healthcare that they brought with them. So they were more able to drink more water from the fire hose. Right. As opposed to now, they're taking someone who has no healthcare experience, no experience interacting with someone who's ill or doesn't feel well and trying to get a complete history from them. And this is what you're seeing. This is exactly what we're about to walk into in our mm -hmm. profession. So for me, that, those two years with PA, I think, armed me with a perspective of knowing we've got to have someone, something in place now to help with this transition. Yeah. We're going to have really smart athletic trainers coming out. They're going to be prepared with skills and knowledge that you and I were not prepared with. The difference is they don't know how to translate it into clinical practice. And that's right. where we need this transitional program that does not take advantage of them monetarily mm -hmm. and scaffolds them with clinical skill and advanced knowledge so that after one year, they are ready to transition into more autonomous practice. Right, right. And, you know, I think looking at, at everything we've talked about so far today, <clears throat> excuse me, and some of the concerns I hear from people, uh, colleagues of mine, uh, friends of mine, when talking about the, the master's program, and again, not knocking the master's program at all. There's mm -hmm. a lot of good things and there's a lot of question marks that we don't know. And this may, like what you talked about, maybe very well be one of them. But one of the big things is people say, well, I felt that when I was a GA, I needed that. I needed that year or that two years where I had that, that safety net, that crutch that I could lean on because I wasn't ready yet. Yes. And their fear is that we are going to create, like you said, extremely intelligent athletic trainers, but their fear is that while they will be vastly superior in intelligence, they will be vastly inferior in their, their clinical ability. And 
I think when you look at this, like you said, there are, there are intern programs. I mean, the, the GA route is, it's not totally dead, but it's almost there, you know? Yes, it is. And there's all, there's very few programs that offer them. And the ones that do, you know, they offer one and you're looking at, you know, these, these intern models, like you said, where they pay you very, very little and they work, you work, you work, you work, you, and there's no educate. You're not gaining anything out of it other than a resume builder, you know, you're getting and, experience, but you don't know if there's a better way to do something because you don't have the mentorship behind you. Right. Absolutely. That's a better way to describe it than I was describing it. So I think the residency will ultimately, if people do it the right way, can offer the, the universities the opportunity to increase their workforce like they're like they're currently using utilizing in the interns but it will be more beneficial to the profession of athletic training because you have people there who are they have mentorship they have increased education through their certificate program or like what you're doing they're getting you know courses that they can then transfer later on and they are still financially stable mm -hmm. you know and i think that's a that's that's huge because um i know people that are have gone through those internships and it's it's not always easy you know and um the residency offers all of those things it offers everything the internship does plus some and you can defer the start of your loans if you're enrolled in a residency program you have to get paperwork from your loan agency and the residency director would fill them out verifying you're enrolled in a full-time residency. The key is, is that you, you just can't get additional student loans. You could probably get a regular loan. I don't, right. I wouldn't advise that. I think smart business is select a residency where you're paid enough if you mm -hmm. do have to pay tuition. And again, none of the current 10 that are KD accredited require tuition. Okay they pay you but they're paying you 35 or less right um, the offset with what we're proposing is we're going to pay you a lot more than 35 so that you can afford to pay that tuition and i would hope students would be smart enough to share a room so two people living on 35 36 thousand dollars a year should be doable right that's true that's true yeah so there's a lot of there's a lot of things with the the residencies as they're evolving uh, that's going to create new opportunity, new challenges, and it's really it, it's a really interesting uh, frontier of our profession yeah. right now, um, as as you know, because you're you're navigating through it. That's why when you say you're not an expert, I I disagree because <laughs> you're you're literally planning this and developing it and and going through all that. So um, we have covered everything that we we wanted to talk about uh, before we wrap up. Is there, there is one, yeah, there is one about? thing, and I, I've, I realized just in the couple, last couple of months we didn't talk about this. So in terms of informing people who are interested in residencies, the first thing I want to tell you is just because it's not KD accredited does not mean it's not a good program. Mm -hmm. There are a number of residencies out there. There's at least six or seven that I know of. OSU Sports Medicine has one that's training you to be OrthoTech certified. I believe they take one or two uh, residents a year, so it's a very small program. They're not KD accredited. I want people to... 
think about two or three things that to me are markers of quality. Why would someone not be KD accredited? Well, I think there's two reasons. One, you have to fill out a ton of paperwork and maybe individuals just don't have the workforce to do that and they'd rather put their time and energy on students. And two, financially, you have to pay KD a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, to have an accredited program. So what I would advise, one, look at the salary and you should expect to get full benefits. If you're working a full-time salary, full-time hours, the medical benefits should come along with that. So I think that's the first thing you start with. Two, what is their proposed area of focus? If it is orthopedics, if it is rehabilitation, then what kind of scaffolding do they give you to develop those? Are they giving you cadaver labs? Are they giving you journal clubs? What's the structure of them? What's the intended learning outcomes? These are questions I think that are very fair for a potential resident to ask. And then I think the most critical is what's your hiring rate? Most of the residency websites will show you what percentage found jobs in athletic training. What they don't do is tell you if it was specifically in that area of focus. Okay. But I think that's a fair question. If you're really going through this because you want to work in surgery, then I think it's a fair question to ask what percentage of your graduates find jobs in surgical centers. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I don't think that Katie accreditation is just a blind way of saying quality versus non-quality. There are a number of programs out there that have residencies that have opted not to go the KD route because, again, it's not required. Right. And, that, and that's, that's a great point, and I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, we hear because we are so used to the, the bachelor's degree model where if you did not have KD accreditation, you could not take the BOC, we look to that as our, our stamp of approval for, mm-hmm. for everything. And I think that that's important to note that as the residency programs are out there, because they are certificate programs, because it's not required to complete a residency to take the BOC or anything like that, the KD accreditation is not mandatory. And like you said, you would be, you would be better off and better servicing yourself to ask the questions that you laid out. What is the salary? What are the benefits? What are, what is the, the hiring rate as mm-hmm. opposed to just blindly looking at, is it Katie or not Katie? Because Correct. in this instance, that accreditation does not really matter as opposed to the educational model that we're used to where if it wasn't Katie accredited, uh, it was a total disservice for you to enroll in that program. Yeah. And, and my, my goal is to spend the first two years focusing on the program. And I've started enough new programs or been involved in a team that's starting new programs to know that you can plan for everything. And there are still things that just do not produce the outcome you anticipated. And you spend a lot of the first two years ebbing and flowing and changing and rewriting curriculum and tests and lectures to make sure you're hitting the target you want to hit. I would rather spend my two first two years doing that than writing a self-study report. Our intention is to eventually be Katie accredited, but I don't want to spend my first two years doing that. Right, right. And that's, and that's good to know. I mean, that your, your ability to explain that um, is, is very important, not just for this podcast, but in 
understanding of residency knowledge and, and how that whole process works is that, you know, the KD accreditation is, is a great thing. Like you said, you, you eventually hope to, to get to that level, but there's pros and cons to it. And um, as of right now, your program is at a point where they think the KD accreditation is not particularly necessary and maybe five, 10 years down the road, it's like, okay, we got it. We got it exactly how we want it. It'll make the accreditation process a lot smoother. And now's the opportunity to do it and then it'll work out. So anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up everything? No, I think, I think we've covered the gamut. I hope we were general enough to, to provide an audience uh, member the ability to pick what they want out of a potential residency. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And again, this is something, you know, with this podcast, just because we talked about athletic training residencies this once doesn't mean we can't talk about it again. So if there's questions or if you are someone who is perhaps in a residency program or developing a residency program and you would like to share your opinion on it, we can certainly, we can certainly do that. Um, as I mentioned in episode one, we are hoping to do many episodes of, of this podcast and we may touch on topics multiple times. And I think certainly uh, athletic training residencies is something that we can definitely talk about more than once and with multiple people. Um, mm -hmm. I think, I think a great podcast episode would be uh, to get uh Dr. Harris and Dr. Starkey on here and do a debate on this um, where I'll just bring out my popcorn and just let you guys have at it. And uh, yeah, you should you know, join any faculty meeting we have. Right. Right. That would be the easiest podcast in my life. I'll just have to sit here and press record. Um, but um, as always, Laura, it's great talking with you. Um, I appreciate you taking the time uh, out of your day to provide us some information. Uh, for the listeners out there, again, if you have any requests for the podcast, topics you'd like to hear, guests you'd like to hear, or if you would like to talk about something, don't hesitate to get in contact with me. Um, email associated with the podcast, which I'll use from this point forward, is young underscore professionals at oata.org. And that is a wrap for episode number two. Again, this is Mike Johnson and Laura. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. And I hope you have a good day. You too. My pleasure. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye, -bye.